I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with esteemed authors and public figures. Today, I'm interviewing David Brooks, one of America's leading thinkers, about his new bestseller, How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. The book came out on October 24, 2023, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on November 9, 2023. Enjoy. All right, David is on his way over here. The good news is David needs no introduction. Uh, last night he spoke at the Moody Concert Hall in the Arts District for Arts and Letters Live, a sellout, 800 people. And so we're uh, very fortunate to have him uh, today in this marvelous room where he's been before. Uh, so, David, uh, we're in a society and a world where we need to be thinking more about better relationships and less about ourselves, and that's really what your book's about. You say a central theme is Wise people don't just possess information. They possess a compassionate understanding of other people. They know life. So was there an aha moment when you realized somebody who's possessed a lot of information in your life, when all of a sudden you realize, no, what wisdom really is, is this relationship thing? Yeah. Well, first I want to thank Harlan and Kathy. It's great friends, and it's always good to be in your company and always to enjoy your hospitality. I feel I've met half of Dallas through you guys, uh, as well as through Talmadge, as well as through John Talmadge, who's somewhere floating around here. Um, so I'm, for those of you who I haven't met, I'm working on the other half of Dallas, so it's a pleasure uh, to be with you guys. And I should say, just to develop my affinity, I want to mention two dates. I'm going to get the exact dates wrong. Uh, but the first date that was crucial in my life was, uh, it was happened in January 1971. And I was, I was eight or nine years old. And I watched Super Bowl V, which was the Dallas Cowboys against the Baltimore Colts. Ugh. <laughs> and that uh, was the day. The Cowboys ended up losing, but that was the day I became a Cowboys fan. So I've been a Cowboys fan ever since, so that's my affinity. The second date was, uh, I think it's October 27, uh, 2011. And that's when Talmadge and I were together. I was giving a talk. He invited me to give a talk at the... Um, Dallas Bar Association, I think. And the idea of the talk was, it happened to be the sixth game of the World Series. 2011. It was uh, the Rangers against Where's the Ken Cardinals. <laughs> and There's so, Ken. He remembers it well. <laughs> and so my uh, memory of the night was, we watched the game from innings one through three. I spoke from innings three to six. And then we turned on the screen and we watched the final game to celebrate the World Series victory the Rangers were about to win. And as it slipped away, my memory is Talmadge had a few drinks. <laughs> and I'm like a little concerned because Talmadge is my ride back to the hotel. <laughs> and Claire, his wife, came over and in my memory said, don't worry, I'll drive. <laughs> so, it, um, yeah, so it, uh, my wisdom, my view of wisdom has changed over the course of writing the book. And so I used to think wise people are the ones who give you the magic advice. Uh, and so they are, they are like Yoda or Solomon <laughs> or Dumbledore. <laughs> uh, and, but now I think wisdom, wise people are the, capable of receiving your story. They create a spot where you get to know yourself, but it's mostly through what you tell them. And they pull you out and you tell them your story, and they pull things out of your mind that you hadn't occurred to you about yourself. So I'll give you two quick examples. One, there was a place called Bell Labs, famous research facility. And some of the researchers were way more creative and productive than some of the others. Uh, and they want to know why. And so they checked their educational background, they checked their IQ, uh, and they couldn't find it. And then they realized that the people who were way more productive as researchers were in the habit of having breakfast and lunch with an electrical engineer named Harry Nyquist. And Harry Nyquist quizzed them about their problems, got inside their head, pulled out the answers that they didn't know they had inside. And so Harry Nyquist, that's wisdom. 
It's to be able to get inside somebody's head. And I'll give you another example, which some of you may have know this movie, I hope almost everybody, uh, Good Will Hunting. So if there's a scene in there, if you remember the movie, Matt Damon plays this math whiz, and he slays everybody with his wit through the first half of the movie. And one of the characters he slays is, is a therapist played by Robin Williams. And he, he, Matt Damon goes in the office, and he makes fun of a painting that means a lot to Williams that he had, he had painted. And Williams is devastated. The Williams character is just devastated. Then he pulls him out to a park the next day, and they sit in front of a pond. And the, the Williams character says, you know, if I ask you about war, you probably quote from Henry, VIII, Henry V, but you've never been to a war, and you've never had, held your best friend's head in his lap as he died. I ask you about love, you probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never been vulnerable with a woman. You've never let a woman pierce you with her eyes. And so when I look at you, he says, I don't see a confident man. I see a scared kid. And there's nothing I can't learn from you that I can't read in some book. And he says, and then, unless you want to talk about you, who you are, then I'd be fascinated, but you don't want to do that because you're too scared of what you might say. And so this little speech, which I've really condensed, flows from great listening. That this therapist has seen the thing that the kid is trying desperately to hide that he's terrified by life. Uh, and the second thing the speech does is it says there are two kinds of knowledge. There's book knowledge you can get in a book, but then there's the kind of knowledge you get from life that you have to be able to risk, you have to be vulnerable, you have to have experiences, and sometimes you have to suffer. And what he's telling a kid is, you've got this kind of knowledge, but you don't have that kind of knowledge because you're too afraid to go out and get it. And so there's a passage from Montaigne you can be uh, knowledgeable with other men's knowledge, but you can't be wise with other people's wisdom. You have to earn it yourself. Mm -hmm. And that comes from life. And so at the end of the movie, the Matt Damon character goes off in search of experience. And so to me, that's a, the wise people are not the ones who are necessarily professors. So I know a lot of extremely unwise professors. And I know a lot of people who have no education at all, but they've studied the people around them, and they've had some tough times. And when you speak to them, you see a gravity and depth of soul uh, that is impressive. And so the book is filled with some of those stories of people who have really achieved not just a knowledge about engineering, but a knowledge about other people. One of the points that you make in the book is that this skill set of knowing a person deeper and being opening yourself up to be seen deeper are skills that no schools teach and not enough parents teach. And this book is going to teach you, so I encourage you to read it. But, but talk about uh, the kinds of social skills that aren't being taught that are crucial if we're going to start accomplishing what you set out to accomplish with this book in terms of our relationships. So um, some of the skills that don't get taught are basic conversational skills, like how do you end a conversation gracefully? gracefully? How do you ask for and offer forgiveness? How do you uh, sit with someone who's suffering? Uh, I read a study of the number of high school kids, high school boys, who've never asked a girl out on a date. And the number is very high, and they want to know why. And the number one reason they've never asked a girl out on the date is no one has taught them how to flirt. <laughs> and you wouldn't think we should teach flirting, but you got a lot of lonely boys. We should have classes in flirting. I don't know. Um, but the first skill I'll mention is just the skill of greeting somebody. When you first meet somebody, they're you each are asking your unconsciously questions. And questions are, am I a priority to this person? Am I a person to this person? And the answers to those questions will be expressed in your eyes before any words come out of your mouth. And so you want to cast a certain sign of attention. If you attach, cast a generous attention, you'll see people doing the best they can. If you cast a cold and suspicious kind of attention, then you'll see flawed people and you'll be critical. And so I'll tell a story that happened to me in Waco. And Waco's in the same state as Texas. How far away could it be? It's got to be close, right? Um, and so I'm in Waco. I'm at a diner. And I'm having breakfast with a 93-year-old lady named LaRue Dorsey. And she presents herself to me as a stern disciplinarian. She'd been a teacher much of her career. And she told me I loved my students enough to be tough with them. And so I'm a little intimidated by her. 
And into the diner walks a mutual friend of ours, a guy named Jimmy Durrell, who pastors the homeless in Waco. And he comes over, he sees us, he comes over to us, he grabs Mrs. Dorsey by the shoulders and shakes her way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old. And he says to her, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best, you're the best, I love you, I love you. And that tough disciplinarian, in an instant, turns into a bright, eye-shining nine-year-old girl. And Jimmy had cast a warm and embracing attention on her, and suddenly she blossomed. He brought forth a different version. And partly it's because Jimmy just has a really warm personality. But partly it's because Jimmy's a pastor. And so when he sees somebody, theologically, he's looking at a creature made in the image of God. He's looking a bit into the face of God. He's looking at somebody so important that Jesus was willing to die for that person. And so you can be Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, agnostic, but seeing each person you meet with that level of respect and reverence is a precondition for knowing them well. It's seeing that every person you meet is not a problem to be solved. They're just a mystery you'll never get to the bottom of. And if you approach that with that kind of gaze, you bring forth a whole different world. You, bring, you, you make people around you blossom. Mm -hmm. So that's just the very first skill, even before we start talking. So, you're, so you just use the word see. If we see others, one of the key concepts in your book, and expand that to where you want to illuminate others. And in the course of that relationship, they illuminate you, such that there's a reciprocity. But for that to happen, we obviously have to set aside our egos. We have to commit to knowing others and being better listeners, being willing to ask questions, being curious about others. To me, that's a major transformation in our society if people are going to start doing that as opposed to obsessing about themselves as too many people do. So give us your perspective on how what you seek to do, you believe, is possible. Uh, well, we're just trying to get better. We're not going to be saints. But so I ask people in this room, how good are you at understanding the people around you? And so I haven't met most of you, but I can say with a high degree of confidence, you're not as good as you think you are. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a guy at UT Arlington uh, named Willem Ikes, William Ikes, who researches how well do we understand each other when we first meet. And the average person understands the other human being they've just met correctly 20% of the time. And some people are pretty good there 55% of the time. And a lot of people are um, terrible. They're 0% of the time, but think they're 100% of the time. <laughs> And one of the weird things is a lot of marriages, people understand each other less well the longer marriage goes on. Because when they first got married, they locked in an image of who this person is. But the person changed, and they haven't updated their models. And so it's, you just take some work and take some skill. And this is not some lofty everyday thing. In every workplace, it's necessary to understand the people around you. So McKinsey did a study asking people, first they ask CEOs of firms, why do people leave your firm? And the number one answer from the CEOs was, um, people leave my firm to make more money. They can make more money somewhere else. And then they asked the people who quit, why'd you quit? And the number one answer was, my manager didn't recognize me. So it's, it's that act. It's, it's not only some saintly thing of seeing others. It's just being a manager to someone and understanding the world from their point of view. And some of us are so locked into our own point of view, we can't see the world from anybody else's. And so there's a, a story of a guy who's on one side of the river, and there's a lady on the other side of the river, and she screams at him, how do I get to the other side of the river? And he shouts back at her, you are on the other side of the river. <laughs> and so he, he can't see the world from her point of view. Uh, and so one of the keys in the book, it's seeing is the first, but the second phase is conversation. You just have to be really good at conversation. And so how good are you guys at conversation? Well, again, I haven't met most of you, but you're not as good as you think you are. <laughs> it's very easy to have a casual conversation. Casual conversations are great. But if you really want to recognize somebody, you just have to be really good at conversation. And so I went around for the book interviewing conversation experts uh, and asked them, how can I get better? And so I'll share a couple of the tips they gave me. One is treat attention as an on-off switch, not a dimmer. If you're going to attend to somebody, make it 100% or 0%. Another one is be a loud listener. I've got a buddy, when you talk to him, it's like talking to a Pentecostal church. 
Uh, he's like, yes, amen, I agree, amen, preach, preach that. Just love talking to that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a, another one is don't fear the pause. In normal conversation, we're just bantering, but sometimes something really important is said. And so I'll, we'll be in conversation, I'll start talking at my shoulder, and my comment will go to my fingertips. And so at what point have you stopped listening so you can think of what to say? It's probably here. And so if it's really important, let me talk to my fingertips. And then make a pause, and then you can respond. And it's just respectful. And then the final one I'll mention is don't be a topper. And so the, 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 if somebody says to me, I'm having trouble with my teenage boy, my instinct is to say, oh, I get what you're going through. I'm having trouble with my Tommy. And it sounds like I'm trying to relate. But really what I'm doing is saying, let's not talk about you. Let's talk about me. So don't be a topper. And in the book, there's a bunch more. But th those are some of the tips to just improve your conversational skills. Now, one of the reasons that your book is so timely is because of the condition in our society now. And your book covers many of the statistics about an epidemic of suicide, hopelessness, loneliness, meanness, bitterness, decline in charitable giving, a crisis of distrust. Do you think most people are aware of how bad things are in connection with all those areas? I think by now they are. I think people understand that. I think most families have, have held some confrontation with mental health problems. Uh, I lost a friend to suicide about a year and a half ago, and I mentioned to a group of people on a Zoom call that I'm, we meet every week. And I'd say of the 25 people on the call, probably 20 had some contact with a friend or a relative who had either at least thought about suicide. Uh, and then just the meanness everybody's aware of. Um, I mean, the statistics that get me... One you refer to, it used to be, like 20 years ago, two-thirds of Americans gave to charity. Now less than half of all Americans give to charity. Why is that? The number of Americans who say they have no close personal friends uh, has gone up four times, 400% since 2000. So that is just weird. And when people are sad, they regard it as an injustice because there's nothing worse to be not seen. And so they lash out. And society gets meaner. My sister-in-law is a nurse at a hospital in New Jersey. And um, she says our toughest challenge is keeping staff because the patients have become so abusive, the nurses burn out and want to leave the profession. I was uh, in New York at a restaurant, and the owner came up to me, and we were chatting. And he said, um, I have to kick somebody out of the restaurant every, once every week these days for abusive behavior toward the staff. That never used to happen. And let alone all the stuff that happens on airplanes with the stewardess and stuff like that. So I think people are aware there's some sort of crisis. I think people don't understand it, which is fair. I don't completely understand it. I think social media plays a big role, the lack of civic involvement. I think the fact that we're no longer as often in extended families, so you don't learn like the social skills of dealing with crazy Uncle Dick or whatever like that. <laughs> Um, but I think a lot of it is, for one reason or another, people are just not taught those skills I mentioned before of how to break up with somebody without breaking their heart. Like I teach at college, and I, I ask my young people, why you guys are so distrustful of each other? And one woman said to me, I've had four boyfriends in my life. All of them ghosted me. Not one of them broke up by, let's have a conversation. I, I, I want They just disappeared. And so she felt betrayed, and she's, of course, going to think the next guy is going to ghost me, too. And so I just think we, we, somehow we haven't taught these skills. Mm -hmm. Now, a very important skill that your book teaches is how to approach hard conversations. It may be about politics. It may be a business situation. It may be a personal situation. What are the key thoughts in your mind about how to prepare for and enter into what you know is going to be a hard conversation. Yeah. So the, the first thing, like people come at you, if you're a manager at a company or if you're a pundit or whatever, there's a lot of people come at you often with critique. Or you're just trying to talk to somebody across ideological difference, there's going to be critique. And when I'm critiqued in that way, my instinct is to get all defensive and to say, um, hey, I'm one of the good guys here, or you don't know what I'm going through. 
But I've learned the right strategy, which is a hard one, is my first job is to stand in their standpoint. So instead of getting defensive, I ask them three or four or five times in different ways, tell me more about what you're thinking. Tell me more about what you're thinking. And I try to get them into storytelling mode. So I no longer ask them, what do you believe? I ask them, well, how did you come to believe this about that? And if you can get them to storytelling mode, they're telling you about a personal experience they have. They're not just attacking you. Or they're telling you about somebody who shaped their values. And if I can get them exploring what their point of view is, I may not persuade them and they may not persuade me, but at least I'm showing them respect. And in any conversation, but particularly in a hard conversation, respect is like air. When it's present, nobody notices. And when it's absent, it's all anybody can think about. So in any conversation, there's the thing we're nominally talking about, but then there's the under-conversation, which is the flow of emotions between us. Uh, and so uh, I mean, with each comment, I'm either making you feel safer or less safe, respected or less respected. And so I want to be conscious of that underflow. And when we start fighting, like we might start out fighting about a, a marketing plan for a company. And I think my marketing plan is better and somebody else thinks theirs is better. But as the fight goes on, our motivations deteriorate. And so what I, I start thinking, I just want to show I'm better than you. I want to show I'm smarter than you. I want to show I'm more powerful than you. And once the motivations deteriorate, everything that will subsequently be said will be harmful to the relationship. And I was, I was talking to a guy a couple months ago, and he said, my wife and I tried to save our marriage but once our motivations started deteriorating, we should have just shut up. We should have gone to bed and talked the next day. But we said so many hurtful things after that, there was no repair. And so there are a couple ways to save a conversation that's heading south. The first is to keep the gem statement in the center. So we may be fighting about our marketing plan, but we both want what's best for our company. And so if we keep coming back to the thing we agree upon, the gem statement, then we save a relationship amidst disagreement. Another thing is to find the disagreement under the disagreement. So if we're disagreeing about the Middle East or we're disagreeing about tax policy, there's probably a philosophical reason we disagree. And if instead of just restating our positions, we say, well, why do we really disagree? Let's go down and figure it out. Then we are um, having a joint exploration. It's more fun. It's something we're doing together. Like, why are we really disagreeing here? Uh, and so these are some ways to like, deal with the hard conversations, which I find happen all the time these days. Um, and I mentioned to you earlier, I, I was at a ball game two years ago at Nats Park in DC. And a guy turns around to me in the ninth inning, uh, and he says, are you David Brooks? Uh, and um, I said, yeah. And I expect him to say, oh, I like your writing, or something like that. And he says, you're an effing a-hole. <laughs> like, whoa, whoa. And so my wife tries to intervene, and he pushes her aside, says, get off me, woman. And my son, who's bigger than me, tries to intervene. He's like, get away, get away. And then he says, look at you. I'm in the presence of pure evil. My hand is shaking. I think he had a few beers. Uh, but I would like to say at that moment, I did all the things I just preached at you. <laughs> But my son and I got a little aggressive. Testosterone got going, so we, we didn't do it. But I think in the ensuing years, if I had to do it again, hopefully I'd like try to show the guy some respect, see if he would calm him down. Because I will say, as a, as a pundit, I get these, all these angry emails. And if you write back and saying, uh, thanks for writing. I'm glad you expressed your point of view. Or sh show some respect. In 95% of the cases, they immediately turn around and are completely respectful and fine and decent and civil. It just takes that one thing to switch on, the respect switch. <laughs> now, I suspect everybody in this crowd has a close family member or friend who's uh, having a tough time, maybe battling depression. And your book has a wonderful section on how best to deal with that. In fact, you dedicate the book to a friend of yours, your best friend, who all of a sudden had steep depression and resulted in suicide. So the operative word, the key word here is empathy. From all you've learned, your social science research, as well as your personal experience, 
One of the most important things to keep in mind if you're trying to be empathetic with somebody who's in a bad place. Yeah. I feel a little shy talking about this in front of John because he actually knows what he's talking about. <laughs> uh, but so I had this friend named Pete, and we knew each other since we were 11, and we played basketball constantly, even though he was about eight inches taller than me. Um, and he had a great life. He was an eye surgeon, uh, and he had a great wife, a great, two great boys. Uh, and suddenly at age 57, he just got hit by depression. And I think I'm a reasonably well-educated person, uh, but I didn't really understand what depression was. Uh, and so I thought it was like sadness. So you could extrapolate my own moments of sadness, and it's like a, a severe form of sadness. That's not what depression is. Um, my friend Mike Gerson, who was a, a Bush speechwriter and a Washington Post columnist, wrote who suffered from depression. He said, depression is a malfunction, uh, a malfunction in the instrument you use to perceive reality. And so you're not perceiving reality accurately. And in my friend's case, um, he had these obsessive compulsive lying voices in his head, which said, you're worthless, you're worthless, nobody would miss you if you were gone. And so how do I, I didn't know how to, the social skill and really the moral skill of how to deal with somebody going through this. And so early on I made two mistakes which I'm, have been since been told are the mistakes um, uh, a lot of people make. So the first thing I did was I tried to give him ideas on how to get out of depression. And so I said, you know, you used to do these service trips to Vietnam, you really they found them so rewarding, why don't you go do that? And I have since learned uh, that if you tell a person with depression, if you give them ideas on how to get out, all you're communicating is you just don't get it. Because it's not ideas they're lacking. It's energy, it's a lot of other things, but it's not ideas. And then I did this thing psychologists call positive reframing. I tried to remind him of all the wonderful things about his life. And that made it worse. Because all I was doing was reminding him that he was not enjoying the things that are palpably enjoyable. And so these are common mistakes, and I made them. And I think having oh, the three years that he was in depression were a hard education. And I learned the first thing to do is to acknowledge the reality of the situation. It's just say, this sucks. This just sucks. And the second thing I wish I'd learned to say, which I got from a, a Baptist pastor who deals with this, he, he says to his congregants when they come to him with this sort of thing, I want more for you. And that doesn't solve anything, but it's at least an intention, I want more for you. And then the, the other thing I've learned is from Viktor Frankl, who wrote this book, great book, Man's Search for Meaning. And when he was confronted, he was in the death camps in Nazi Germany. And when he was confronting people who were considering suicide, he said, um, I, uh, life has not stopped expecting things of you. So he, he put them some responsibility on the person. That sounds a little harsh to me. But apparently, he's a very wise therapist, so it worked. I, life has not stopped, stopped expecting things of you. And so he would say, look, the fact that you've, you're enduring this pain is, and you're, A, you're still here, that's a sign you have amazing courage, because you're still here. But B, it gives you credibility as you address others who are in pain. And I have a quote in the book from Thornton Wilder, and he says, without your pain, your pain allows your low voice to tremble in the hearts of men. And he says, in love service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. If you've been through something, then you, can, then you really speak with credibility. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We're back with my friend Andy. We're back to the Pentecostals. Uh, <laughs> and then the, the other final thing I'll say about empathy is it's the willingness to understand what they need, not what you think they need. And so I, I tell a story in the book I heard from a guy named Rabbi Elliot Kukla that he had a congregant who had a, had, had a brain injury, and she would sometimes just fall to the ground, just out of the blue, just fall to the ground. And she said when she did this, people would rush to lift her up because they felt so uncomfortable seeing an adult on the ground. And she said, what I really need for them at that moment is for them to get on the ground with me and just sit there. Uh, and so it's not acknowledging what makes them comfortable, not what makes you comfortable. And that is, that is the gift of empathy. Mm -hmm. Now, another important trait that your book goes into is how important it is to recognize the different personality types. And once you 
draw a good conclusion about that, direct your conversation to be in flow with their nature. Talk about how you go about that process. The, 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 the personality traits, there are five of them. Extroversion, conscientiousness, neuroticism, agreeableness, and openness. What's your process for kind of seeing somebody amidst those traits and then tempering your conversation to their personality? Yeah. Well, it, once, once you see what the five personality traits are and read the literature about them, then it's very easy to find that, you, that personality traits are right on the surface. And so if you want, if you were, uh, like, we have some friends of George W. Bush here, we're Dallas. And so if you meet the guy for a second, you think, wow, that guy's high in extroversion. And somebody wrote a whole book about this that, and he quoted from George H.W. Bush's letter that little Georgie came home from school at age three and he was just talking a blue streak. And uh, apparently at his Sunday school when he was like five, all the other students are greeting the teacher respectfully. And little George W. was like, hey, sexy lady, how you doing? And like, <laughs> and other, uh, I'm sure a lot of people here know him a lot more than I do. But I will say when you're in his presence, he eliminates the distance between you and him. He's just phenomenally good at that. And so he's high on extroversion. And other people are high on neuroticism, which is extreme sensitivity to negative emotion. And there's, this, uh, there's a, uh, a saying in, and then there's agreeableness, which is just being kind to people. And the marriage experts say, if you're going to pick a marriage partner, go with agreeableness, kindness, and avoid neuroticism. And I said this to a friend of mine. He said, well, what do I do? I'm what, if you're neurotic, like, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, so I said the obvious thing, which was, well, marry another neurotic. You'll make two people miserable and not four. So, um, but, but the point is, every personality trait has its own upside. So extroversion is great because people are super sociable. On the other hand, they uh, die more in accidents. They have more alcoholism because they're chasing the thrill. And neuroticism seems very negative because real focus on negative emotion. But if you need somebody to uh, be a prophet and tell you our society's in trouble, it's very good to have somebody who's very sensitive to threat. And open a conscientiousness, if you're hiring somebody for a low, for a normal position in your firm, conscientiousness is the most important trait because these are people with a lot of self-discipline and they make great for making an organization run. On the other hand, people who are highly agreeable, very kind, tend not to become CEOs because people don't think they're tough enough. And so all the, once you have these categories in your head, you, you begin to, like, you, you can see people more intelligently. It's like, I drink wine, I like a good glass of wine, but I'm, I'm not a sommelier. If somebody says to me, oh, that wine has high tannins and low minerality, I don't really know what they're talking about. But those sommeliers can taste wine more subtly than I can. And so we want to be sommeliers of people. We want to know what human nature is like. And then the final subject on this is, if you're a parent, there's no right way to parent. There's the only right way to parent your particular kid. And so if your kid is very... Um, is high on neuroticism, very sensitive to negative emotion, and you're not so agreeable, the tone of voice you use that sounds to you like normal conversation will sound to your kid like screaming. And so you just have to know how to parent to that particular set of personality sets. And most of us want to parent in a way that pushes against the natural tendencies. If a kid is introverted, you want to push them to have, be more social. If the kid is extroverted, you want to push them to slow down a little. And so just knowing these categories is just super important. Mm -hmm. Now, your book is filled with a lot of thoughtful quotes, which are springboards for your discussion. There's one I particularly like from Carl Jung. The achievements which society rewards are won at the cost of diminution of personality. Expand upon that. Particularly, we've got this room full of high achievers, from school, career, the rewards of society. And we all know you pay a price for pursuing all that. Yeah, I, I guess I would say, you know, this actually goes back to my last book. So probably like a lot of people in this room, I've achieved way more career success than I ever thought I would. And you would think it would make me joyfully happy. But I think being career success, 
has helped me avoid the anxiety I might feel if I felt myself a failure. But the amount of positive, like joy it has produced, is disappointing. <laughs> I'll say that. And I went through a hard phase caused in a way by my career success. First, because I have this clock in my head that wants to be efficient with time all the time. And so I pulled into a gas station uh, and uh, I think, okay, I got 90 seconds to fill up my tank. I, I can get two emails done. And <laughs> if you want to destroy friendship, if you want to destroy anything meaningful in life, go through life with a clock in your head. That efficiency mindset is death to relationships. And second, I had a lot of friends, this is going back 10 or 15 years ago, I had a lot of friends who were my work friends who I could talk about politics with, but I had surprisingly few weekend friends, people I could just hang out with. And I have friends in DC who say they like their um, friends to be lingerable, kind of people you just want to hang out with. Uh, and so after my kids left home, the kids sort of occupied our weekends, suddenly I had nothing. <laughs> Uh, and so I, um, I went through a divorce around this time, and I was living in a lone apartment, and I did what any middle-aged male idiot would do, which is I tried to work my way through the problem. And so when you went to my kitchen, I wasn't having anybody over. So if the drawer where there should have been silverware, there was post-it notes, and the drawer where there should have been plates, there was stationery. So like that's a sign of an extreme work problem, workaholic problem. And so I was in a valley, uh, and I realized uh, they say moments of suffering interrupt your life and remind you you're not the person you thought you were. They carve into the floor of the basement of your soul, and they reveal a cavity, and they carve in the floor of the basement of your soul and reveal another cavity even below that. And when you see deeper into yourself than you'd ever seen before, you realize that only spiritual and relational food will fill that hole. And so I think a lot of this book comes from that, like, how do I get better at relationship? And so I think I'm more emotionally open now than I was then, and I have proof, but I have to name drop in order to show you the proof. So I've been interviewed twice in my life by Oprah, uh, and the first time was in 2014, the second time was in 2019. And after the second interview, she pulls me aside and said, David, I've never rarely seen somebody change so much in middle age. You were so emotionally blocked before. And so that was a good day for me. Like, I'm making some progress here. <laughs> and hopefully people notice. Mm -hmm. Now, another important word from your book that hasn't been used enough is the concept of generativity, the capacity to foster and guide the next generation, the decision to be of service to the world, and people either decide to be generative or else they decide stagnate. Now, this audience is mainly people 60 or older. We have some exceptions to that rule. But talk about your own commitment to the next generation. Obviously, this book is a big deal. You give a lot of speeches. What are you trying to do with your own personal generativity? Well, um, the book is hopefully an act of, it'll be helpful to people. I'm hopeful for that. Uh, my wife and I are teaching a class next spring at my alma mater, Chicago. And it's for people between the ages of 50 and 70, on what to do with the last third of your life. And I've been really struck interviewing a lot of people in business who are approaching retirement. And a lot of the people I interview are terrified. And one guy said to me, I, I have another friend who retired at a, from our firm, and he thought he had 200 close friends at the firm. But once he retired, he found he had five. People just drop away. And another guy said, another person who retired told me, I cried once as an adult when my daughter got cancer. In retirement, I cry every day. I'm like, whoa, it's supposed to be fun. And so we're trying to, to switch from that mindset, um, which is uh, all about acquisition, helping the firm, things like that, to switch to a giving mindset, which is really what retirement should be about. And it's a total change in consciousness to shift from sort of how do I get ahead to how do I be a servant. Uh, and it takes years. Uh, and I was with somebody who, um, who said, uh, I found out I was really terrible at predicting what will make me happy. Because she had all these things that she thought would satisfy her in retirement, and it didn't. And she'd worked in the arts all her life in New York, and she suddenly was bored. And now she's become a real estate developer in, in her 70s, which she finds tremendously satisfying. So you picked the right profession, Harlan. 
and so, you know, when I think about that, I think about that shift. But really, it's about this elemental act that seems so small, seeing others and being deeply seen. But to me, these small acts are just tremendously powerful. And so the last four years, I've gone around um, and asked people, tell me about a time you felt seen. And people with glowing eyes describe some moment. And to me, they seem like everyday moments. And so I'll tell two final stories. The one is a, one of my students at Yale. I taught her as a graduate student. It was a woman named Jillian Sawyer. Uh, and she. Uh, her dad died of pancreatic cancer when she was in college. And as she, he was dying, they talked about that he would miss her big events in life. And so after college, uh, she uh, is invited to be a bridesmaid at a friend's wedding. So she's a bridesmaid, and she sees the dad at the wedding giving a toast to his daughter, and she's tremendously moved. And then it comes time for the father-daughter dance. And she realizes, I just can't. I just can't do this. And so she goes off in the ladies' room to have a cry. And when she gets out of the ladies' room, she finds that all the people at her table and the adjoining table had gotten up, and they were just standing outside the ladies' room. And she gets out, and nobody said a word. Each of them just gave her a hug. And she said, I've never felt silence that felt so powerfully supportive. And she said, they didn't try to validate my grief. They just were there for me, and it was just what I needed. And so that's somebody at that table said, let's go off and be with Jillian. And that's just, that, so she tells me this story, and she'll remember that for the rest of her life. And so that's the power of being seen. And then the power of seeing another human being is also a transcendently fun act. And so Harlan and Kathy and you and uh, Claire and John and a couple others can uh, know my wife, Anne. And so I'm at... My, our dining room table in, back in D.C. Uh, and uh, I'm reading a book at the dining room table in the middle of the afternoon. And it's a tremendously boring book. Most of my books are tremendously boring. Uh, and my wife, Anne, opens the front door. Uh, and she pauses at the doorframe. And I look up, and the like, summer sun is coming in behind her. And she's just pausing on the door. And she doesn't notice I'm there because that's the kind of charisma I have. <laughs> uh, she's, she's, she's just looking at an orchid we keep on a table by the door. And I have this sensation, which was, I really know her. I really know her through and through. And if you had asked me what I knew about her at that moment, it was not like her personality traits. It was not the words I would use to describe her. It was the whole flow of her being. It was like the whole harmony of who she is somehow. It's like her incandescence, her occasional fierceness, her little insecurities. It was just like everything. And it's when you've been around somebody, you like somehow you're not, it felt like I was not seeing her, I was almost seeing out from her. And to really see another person, you have to see a little how they see the world. Uh, and the only word I could use to describe how I was looking at her I wasn't inspecting her. I wasn't observing her. I was just beholding her. And it's like just this appreciation. And it, that moment was tremendously fun. It was just a beautiful moment. And I told, after it happened, I told the story to a friend of mine who has grandkids. And he said, yeah, that's what my wife and I do with our grandkids. We just behold them. And that's like one of the life's great pleasures. And so that's the destination we're aiming for with these kind of skills. We have time for a few questions. Anybody have a question for David? Yes, Harlan. I don't know how to ask the question, but it's Yeah, I'm, I'm trying the micro level one by one. So I, but if you want to phrase what I'm describing here another way, 
It's loss of trust. And so if you asked Americans 60 years ago, do you trust your neighbors? 60% uh, of Americans said, yeah, the neighbors are trustworthy. And we've talked about this in the past, that most of the people one does business with, I find are trustworthy. Uh, and, um, but if you ask 25-year-olds, only 19% say people are trustworthy. And so we've just seen this collapse in social trust. And without trust, you can't do business. You're not going to be sociable with other people because you think they're out to get you. You're not going to have good politics because you're going to assume it's all war of all against all. And so I went around asking social scientists, how do you rebuild trust in a society? Uh, and so I asked the social scientists, and they said, we don't know. We've never really seen it happen. So <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> but then I asked historians. And they said, yeah, I can think of a couple examples. And one of them was Britain between 1812 and 1848. In 1812 in Britain, it was completely normal for guys to get drunk at work, go home, and beat their wives. That was not considered disgraceful. By 1848, there was sort of Victorian morality that seeped in, and that was suddenly disgraceful. But I'll give a closer-to-home example, which is America between 1880 uh, and 1910. So in 1880, we had these huge economic fluctuations, a highly individualistic culture, low trust, tons of social conflict. And so, but by 1910, things were much better. And so what happened? Well, first, there was a cultural shift or a religious shift, which was that social Darwinism, which is the idea that society, war, life is a competition of everybody against everybody else, was replaced by something called the social gospel, social gospel movement. And that was the theology of community. And so you had a cultural shift. And then second, in the 1890s, you had a civic revival. And so you had within like 10 years, you had the spread of the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, the Boys Clubs, the Girls Clubs, the NAACP, the Environmental Movement, the Settlement House Movement, the uh, uh, one movement after another. Because basically, Americans looked around and said, we've built all these institutions for healthy communities, but they're all designed for kids growing up in Kansas in the prayer, you know, in the country. And now we've got a million kids in Cleveland or in Philadelphia or Chicago. We, have, we need new institutions to help these people. And so you had this amazing surge of civic activism. And then finally, you had a political movement, which was progressive movement, which cleaned up government and which did all sorts of things to like create the Federal Reserve System, do all sorts of institution buildings. And so it went culture and then civic and then political. And that seems to me like the right normal formula. And I happen to think right now we're in the midst of a civic renaissance. I think there are a lot of social entrepreneurs. There are a lot of people, foundation work, creating community. And I don't know if we're in the cultural, a bit of a cultural shift away from a culture of hyper-individualism to a more communal culture. But we've got to get those two things because we're not going to get the political thing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think this is a, a saner politics would help. Uh, but because um, it's hard to rebuild society from the ground when it's being ripped shreds from the top. But uh, so right now I'm focusing on the culture, which is this book, and then I have a little project called Weave, which is lifts up community builders. Uh, and so and that, that's how it would be my best answer. But it's a super hard problem. Any other question? Yes, Greg. Who would you invite to your fantasy dinner and why? Hmm. I had dinner with Jason Garrett last night. That was pretty good. <laughs> and his wife. And his wife, Brill, yeah. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think if I could talk to anybody, well, it would, it would help clarify a lot of things if I could, like, have a quick dinner with Jesus. Like, what's the deal here? Son of God, not son of God? Like, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I wish I could think of an uh, unusual uh, answer. I mean, obviously, to be, have the chance to meet Lincoln would be a dream come true. So I'm not giving you particularly original examples. Um, it would be fun to, to meet um, some of the great novelists on Earth. Uh, and so what, especially with this book, I, I, I read so many books, novelists, people who really understand are so wise about other people. And so there's a, even there's a French writer named Guy de Maupassant who, said, who described one of his characters in this way. He was a guy with red whiskers 
who always needed to walk through a doorway first. And immediately you get the image of a guy with sharp elbows. I need to get here first. But I guess, I mean, this is again not original, but I'd love to know Tolstoy. Because here's a guy in, in a lot of British or American novels that are like some main characters, and then there are fringe characters who are like flat stock characters. In Tolstoy novels, there are no stock characters. Everybody's a thick character. And what amazes me about him is his amazing knowledge of humanity. And so I'll just one quick example. There's a scene in Anna Karenina, and it's about a little girl, uh, not a girl, a teenager, 17-year-old woman named Kitty. And as far as I know, Leo Tolstoy was never a 17-year-old woman. Uh, and, but he describes Kitty dressing for a ball. And he describes what it felt like when her velvet choker fit just perfectly, when she knows her dress is just awesome, her hair is perfect. And she goes to the ball, and she's the belle of the ball. And he describes her joy. She's dancing around all these dances. I don't know what they are, a quadrille or whatever. Um, she's dancing around, and she's just filled with joy. And she's waiting that night for a guy named Vronsky to ask her to last dance, and she thinks propose to her. And um, so she's dancing, and she's being turned around by somebody else, and she sees Vronsky's face, and he's got a look of utter love on his face. And then she's spinning around, and then she sees him again, and he realizes he that look of utter love is directed at somebody else, a woman named Anna Karenina. And so Tolstoy describes her how her insides go from glowing incandescence to like crushed, total agony in an instant. Uh, and it, he just takes you inside that person. And so Tolstoy had the ability to never simplify another human being. And I would just love to have, to have met a mind like that who could do that. I can give you other examples, George Eliot, other people. But, uh, and then I'm trying to think. I've, I'll tell you one person I, I always wanted to meet which is I'm a big Springsteen fan. <laughs> and I got a chance, I've had a chance recently to spend time with him. And it's always dangerous to meet your heroes. Um, but he totally over, he lived up to every expectation, every hope. Just wonderful to be around the guy. And so that, that would, I got to meet him, so that might have been my last living person that would be my, in my Hall of Fame up there. Well, before we close, uh, David mentioned that he and I first got to be friends through baseball, and we suffered together, Ken, through Game 6, 2011. But, of course, we now have the world champion Texas Rangers. And so, David, okay. when you go back. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And we're that proudly uh, I want a Max Scherzer uh, autograph. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I told this, I'm going to get you a New York Mets World Series champion 2024 uh, next year when it happens. <laughs> Wishful thinking. Well, anyway, thank you, David, for coming to Dallas. Thank everybody. David Brooks's new book is a much-needed reminder of how best to enhance our relationships something in which we all need to focus in this day and time. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and the Washington Independent Review of Books. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.